This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. In this episode, we are discussing exercise prescription and type 2 diabetes risk reduction. And we have a great guest for this episode. He did his PhD in kinesiology at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and his postdoctoral fellowship work at Cleveland Clinic. The primary focus of his clinical translational research is to improve the well-being of people through preventing and treating obesity-related type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Currently, he is working as associate professor in Rutgers University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, associate professor Stephen Malin. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Ali. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, great to have you. And maybe you can tell a little bit about your background, about your PhD, about your work at the Cleveland Clinic. How much do you do research? How much is it clinical and, and so on? Sure. Let's say, I guess I'd start off by saying I never thought I'd be a professor. I'm a lifelong jock at heart. I love sports and I've been involved in sports my whole life. Um, even at this day, I love competing through swimming, running, and cycling. So do, trying to do triathlon, uh, some might say. But it started off with really this idea of maybe going into medicine. And as I was embarking on that journey, a suggestion was perhaps get a master's degree as well to help support your academic endeavors. And I did. And with a passion of research, I was really involved at the undergraduate level in a special opportunity to do sports nutrition, biochemical research. And that prompted me to go into nutrition as a master's degree at the University of Delaware. And doing that, I really found myself enjoying academic life. I thought it was an amazing opportunity to work with other professors on research topics and questions that could really impact not only athletics, but health care. And from that, began to understand more what was involved in being an academic professor and teaching. And that became a real joy too, um, getting to impact what other people are thinking and how they're going about their views of not only exercise and nutrition, but just health in general. And I found it to be a really stimulating environment too, getting asked questions that I really didn't know the answer to. So I thought that was a really neat opportunity. Upon thinking of those things, I think a lot of exercise enthusiasts tend to think one plus one is two. If we do more of this, it's going to be even better. And, and assuming that linear thought. And I was fortunate enough in applying to different programs. And Dr. Barry Braun was gracious enough to accept me in his lab at the time at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And it was there that I really began embarking on these ideas of one plus one equaling two from a healthcare perspective, but starting to think about medication and exercise interaction. And I think in many ways that prompted this clinical focus that really centers now at our research as it pertains to insulin resistance and treating type 2 diabetes. And doing that work, I certainly appreciated then the chance to go and further that 
clinical and medical thought process by uh, joining Dr. John Kerwin's lab at the Cleveland Clinic. And there, for the most part, it was really centered around clinical research. So there wasn't necessarily clinical care per se, but rather working with patients ranging from uh, those in endocrinology clinics, uh, being treated with medication, exercise, and nutrition for their own glycemic control and well-being, uh, to even extending working with people like Phil Shower in the bariatric centers uh, and understanding how bariatric surgery might be used as a therapy to treat weight. Uh, but also the comorbidities around that, like type 2 diabetes. So I was really fortunate working with these individuals to help focus in on what our research was going to look like in the years following that. And I'm very humbled and thankful to have worked with all of them. Yeah, interesting. And you came from sport background, and then you started working with patients. How was the start? What were the understandings you, you came to? Gain yeah, it, it's funny because I think in some ways, um, starting backwards a little bit and thinking with a lot of the patients that we interact with, even to today, many of them will share stories of, oh, when I was in college or when I was in high school, I used to run track or lift weights and do this, that, or the other. And it really centers a lot around physical activity, but uh, for one reason or another, whether it was work-related, family-related, or just other circumstances in life. They got off that track of being involved in exercise and perhaps their dietary patterns had changed or even their sleep habits had changed such that it became harder for them to do it now, but they're really motivated to get back into it. Um, so I think in some ways, even from when considering facets, when I was in college playing football, as an example, a lot of the concepts in biochemistry, I would think about and how this nutrition could actually impact my body to perform better. And in that way, then looking patient, I don't see it as much difference, to be quite honest with you. I think the body is an amazing entity we have. The design of it, the workings of it are just a puzzle, but a beautiful puzzle in that way. And thinking about how we can apply exercise and nutrition to help that machine essentially work better is a really neat kind of idea we have. And so in, in that regard, you know, just like an athlete will titrate their food, think about the exercise prescription throughout the week to optimize their athletic performance. I don't really see much difference in why we can't apply a lot of those same concepts to metabolic performance and how the body is working such that we can better regulate, say, blood glucose or blood pressure to help with cognitive function and so forth. Um, so I think there's a lot of overlap that way. And at least we apply a lot of those athletic thoughts to our clinical exercise prescriptions to try and help people live better lives. Yeah, sounds good. And if we go to the exercise prescription is risk reduction, uh, could you tell more about your research and what you Sure. Yeah, I think it's something where I often get asked uh, to maybe to start with what is the optimal or the best exercise prescription to treat, say, type 2 diabetes or manage my blood glucose? And, and on some levels, I would say, just move. And, and I wanted to start there because I do think it's appropriate to say that any movement here is going to be good for regulating glycemic control. That said, perhaps there are different ways we can go about optimizing that effect. But I think that message of just move Movement itself is an amazing medicine this way to treat high blood glucose levels and help lower it. And if we focus on that, 
I think some of these other factors then become a little bit more variable, but also entertaining, right? We can start to think about how do we spice that movement up, so to speak, uh, versus maybe getting so caught up in the idea of what's the best intensity or what's the amount that I need to do. Some of those things can become a little bit of a barrier in thinking, if I don't achieve that, am I failing? Am I not doing well? And I think that's another consideration to say, but for years now, whether it's the American College of Sports Medicine or the American Diabetes Association, recommendations are generally speaking to target 150 minutes a week of exercise. This amount uh, can be broken up in a variety of ways. For example, maybe five days a week, about 30 minutes a session will suffice to improve not only your glycemic control, but also your overall cardiovascular health. In that regard, some people are very interested or being recommended by their healthcare providers to lose weight. So the Institute of Medicine, in line with the American College of Sports Medicine, the American Diabetes Association, encourage people to consider exercising for longer durations. And this can be upwards of 300 minutes a week. So instead of exercising five days for 30 minutes a session, this would now go to five days for 60 minutes a session. And part of the reason for that increase in duration is really to help with energy expenditure and to promote more of a caloric deficit so people will lose weight. But weight loss isn't necessarily the be-all, end-all goal for every single person, nor maybe should it. I think this is what's been really fascinating over the years to me to see that with just one single exercise session, people can have a very good impact on their overall health. Uh, so for example, you know, in recent years, we completed a study where it was just one bout, and this was done at about moderate intensity, but thinking about breathing as an indicator of intensity, this would be something where people were able to have conversation, but they'd have to take some breaks in that conversation. So this was about a moderate to hard session versus hard, meaning they could barely even communicate with us where we're doing the exercise or very light, such that it would be like you and I having this conversation right now. But they did this session for about one hour and they expended 400 calories. So this would be approximately, say, four miles of walking. And when they did that session at night and then we measured their insulin sensitivity the next morning, they had improved about 20%. And that's a pretty good finding. Uh, that would be in par with many training studies that find a bit higher. It can be upwards of 30 to maybe 35% or so. But that suggests to us that one bow is quite impactful. And in many ways, that's not necessarily novel either. Individuals like John Halazi years ago uh, had been some of the first investigators ever to show that one bout of exercise was incredibly important for improving insulin's action on the body. And I bring that up because insulin sensitivity is often a target for many healthcare providers, given that insulin is the main hormone that regulates glucose. And a problem with individuals developing diabetes is they often become insulin resistant where their bodies are not responding to that hormone insulin well anymore. And in turn, this forces the pancreas to work a lot harder. And over time, the pancreas can compensate. It's going to put out more insulin into the blood to help control that blood glucose. But just like a runner might over time working really hard, they get tired. And so does the pancreas and that pancreas begins to get exhausted. Uh, what often happens is they develop beta cell dysfunction. In line with that, though, just to say here, exercise, again, can improve beta cell dysfunction. We and others have seen with whether 
it's one bowel to even a week or two weeks of exercise with minimal to no weight loss. Beta cell function is improved quite impressively. And, and these improvements in beta cell function and insulin sensitivity tend to correlate with improvements in blood glucose. So again, I bring this up because as important as weight loss might be for the health and well-being of individuals over a period of time, it's not necessarily the only thing that should be focused on. And these benefits are often seen with exercise before any weight loss can occur. When thinking about some of the challenges, this is why I share earlier, just move. Movement's going to be good. And some of these other side effects, if you will, like weight loss that occur over time are going to be supportive, but the health benefits are being seen even sooner than that. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian from researchers to researchers. And I think it's important to communicate for people that the exercise itself is beneficial even without the weight loss because weight loss is challenging. It takes time yes. and, and people have got used to the treat on the salty things or your stomach is empty you have starting them, but then actual weight loss is challenging. Uh, how do you usually go with the guidelines for the patients, how do you explain these to them? Sure. We make clear usually within our research studies that they're not often designed for weight loss per se. You know, to separate this from say public health recommendations in the research realm, this is one thing we make very clear to them, that we're not necessarily designing these programs to lose weight. Rather, we're designing these to help muscles, blood vessels and other organs in the body work better. We're trying to improve the machinery of these organs, if you will. So we make that help them recognize that their bodily improvements are going to precede the weight loss. And by doing that, it might actually help foster weight loss in time. And in some ways, if the body's not functioning as well, it makes weight loss maybe even harder. So in that way, what we often talk to individuals about is starting slow. And it depends on the situation, of course. In many ways, with the people we talk to, we always encourage them to make sure they have a good attire. You know, so this would be a good pair of shoes, just for example. Uh, especially if they have type two diabetes, sometimes um, side effects and symptoms of diabetes end up manifesting into sore feet and alterations in their skin, such that they can be more sensitive. So we want to make sure they have good shoes to support that overall movement. Whether it's inside the lab with us and our fitness facilities, or it's just outside in the world when the studies are done. Because ultimately that's our hope that what they do with us is going to translate into long lasting effects and habits that'll promote that well-being. We also encourage them to start slow. So in all of our research protocols, we use what we have dubbed the ramp up protocol, meaning we start them at shorter duration and lighter intensity in the early weeks 
And we're gradually ramping up both the time and intensity. Because I know in some ways, intensity has become a very um, interesting discussion and in many ways debates in the field of, do people need to work at very high intensities to derive benefit? Um, so that's something we communicate with a lot of people. I certainly appreciate a lot of great scientists, Marty Kibiala and John Little and a host of others that I'd be remiss to try and name them all because I'll forget. <laughs> but the point is there's a lot of excellent individuals suggesting that interval exercise is perhaps a superior form of exercise. And so we often talk to people about this progression pattern to help understand that intensity may be beneficial at some point, but it also may not necessarily be the end goal for everybody, nor is it necessarily needed for benefit. Um, so this was supported too, the health sports medicine. I was fortunate enough to be on a, a writing team for a position stand. And that was a general consensus that interval exercise is quite effective. So by no means do we ever discount the benefits of high intensity exercise to our patients. We encourage them to consider doing some in time when it's appropriate. Um, but we want to be careful in saying that, again, that's the only way to go. And the consensus statement essentially was it is as effective as other forms of exercise. And perhaps one of the keys is, and why that is, is because of how many calories people are expending. But thinking about it in that way, sometimes these interval programs can be as long in duration as other forms of exercise. And sometimes those research studies have suggested then interval exercise is better. But if they're doing more intense exercise for the same period of time, they might end up expending more calories. So in a way, more calories could lead to more energy deficit and potentially more weight loss. And that could confound this ability to compare intensities of exercise. People in the literature have done some nice research. We've attempted to address some of these questions ourselves too and older people with prediabetes. And generally speaking, when studies match energy expenditure, such that maybe interval exercise is done for less period of time compared to say a lower or moderate intensity exercise that's now exercising at a longer period of time, once these calories are matched, the results, generally speaking, are about the same, um, meaning there are no differences. In fact, we did a study uh, with two weeks of exercise comparing continuous moderate intensity exercise compared to high intensity interval training. And in that study, we found that in both groups, there were significant improvements in glycemic control uh, as measured by an oral glucose tolerance test. And what was really impressive to us from a clinical standpoint was that about 40% of the patients and, and relatively equal in both groups, so not an intensity effect, but just an exercise effect, a movement effect, about 40% of them actually reversed from pre-testing having prediabetes to no longer having prediabetes in just two weeks. So again, this was before really a weight loss of clinical relevance around five to 7% weight had occurred, individuals in our study lost about one pound in that two-week span. So again, thinking about some of those things, we try to promote movement initially to get them up to a certain level. And then what we do is usually after about four weeks, we begin to finalize the prescriptions, thinking at this point, their body should be suited to the exercise, maybe some of that initial soreness of getting acclimated to movement, being on their feet for a period of time that they haven't been used to especially if they haven't done this exercise in a while, they're now ready. The body is primed, so to speak, to work at a level that, that we think would be beneficial to not only their glycemic control, but their overall cardiovascular fitness. 
And, and that's where I think in some levels we do encourage people to work at a level that's going to be a little challenging to talk, but not so much again that they're not able to. But we believe pushing the body to that level of intensity. And to put it in perspective, this might be if we're using heart rate as a gauge, thinking we want to target somewhere between 75 and 85% of their heart rate max. Um, so again, it is getting up there and but we believe that might be beneficial for overall health because it improves their cardiovascular fitness, which we know from amazing literature produced by lots of good individuals that there's reductions in overall cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, as well as cancer risk. Uh, it's a gradual process to say. Yeah. And while you were talking about city, I started to think that in research studies, you need to define exactly what the participants mm -hmm. are doing. So it's easy to say that, all right, 30 minutes with this heart rate, or it's interval one minute with three minute rest and, and so on. If you go outside, there's uphills, mm -hmm. there's level ground, there's downhills, there's a nice view. So you don't really need to do them like in the research studies. You do one training, which is light intensity, moderate, vigorous. You can go to the, to the hills. They are too much stuck from the research studies that it's something really specific and we don't guide people to really mix intensities within a session, for example. That's a great question. And I think what I would say is they might be different. So it might not be fair to necessarily say we're stuck, but I do appreciate that sentiment. It's something, in fact, we've been thinking a lot about lately ourselves. And what I mean by that is I think it's fair to say a lot of the research studies we do are efficacy type trials. You know, in other words, what we're trying to figure out is, does this work? And, and in some ways that's a first step perhaps to simply starting to put these pieces of a puzzle together is I think now you are correctly addressing and raising as an idea, because if we don't know if certain programs or prescriptions work, it may not necessarily be appropriate to recommend them to individuals as a general point. But that said, I do actually worry a little bit. Sometimes we get too stuck in, in a form of thinking that this is the answer or the only way to go. Um, and in some levels, just saying as a side piece, you know, I, I've been worrying a bit on levels of biometrics, even to that extent um, and the well-being and thinking of children. And are we teaching individuals appropriate use of different technology or even athletes? And maybe getting caught up so much in what their, uh, whether it's their heart rate variability, their heart rate, or even the distance sense. For example, if you have athletes going out and they, they go out for their, in their mind saying, I'm going to do a 10 K run today, uh, but they look at their watch and it only says nine or 9.5. Are they now running circles in their yard or maybe around the block again to get up to that? Uh, versus going out and they had a great run and they feel really good. I do temper it to say on some levels that these points you raise, I think are really appropriate because if there's a beautiful sunrise, sunset, or just view, are we encouraging people? It's okay to pause and it's okay to pause for that second, enjoy the scenery and then get back out there and do it. I don't know if we are necessarily as much. Um, and in some ways, I think we do need to consider our recommendations right now and how to make this more translatable in the real world. That said, I think there's also challenges within understanding then the, some of the mechanisms 
for how the body's working. So I think, I think again, like the trick is maybe not so much, are we stuck because these research questions that are being asked are likely more appropriate in certain settings to do an efficacy type trial. But I think we need to also consider those barriers that people are facing and how to think about more public health recommendations and targeting approaches to help individuals engage in exercise and movement patterns throughout the day to support their overall well-being. The adherence is very important. So if, if you think that I need to go and run 10K and I'm feeling tired, I don't know if I can do it. But if your kind of prescription is that go out and just warm up for five minutes and then feel if you want to do a little bit of stairs or you continue running and you can have a break. So I think it could increase the adherence and motivation if it's not very strict, but you just, like you said, just move, but also that you can decide what you do after you start, because usually the body feels tired after the day of working. And after you warm up, you feel, oh, actually, it feels good. I could go. Sure. I think, no, those are good points. And by no means am I a exercise psychologist. But I think these questions do start to embark the combinations of both physiology and psychology on a level that perhaps our society is really wanting more of is trying to understand that. You know, certainly we're, we're inundated with knowledge and information and trying to cipher what's correct, what's not, is daunting at times. So to your point on adherence, again, I come back to that idea of just move. And in some ways, I think maybe what we need to be doing is promoting more variety and promoting engagement in not just one mode, say walk all the time, because maybe that's making people bored and maybe they're not enjoying that as much, but trying to get them out, engage, as you say, see if doing half a mile feels good. And if you feel good, let's try another half mile. And take it as stages versus that big 10K. That's going to be a challenge. But to your point, I do agree. I think it's something where we need to focus on helping people overcome these barriers. And one might be, what do they enjoy? I think it's fascinating to, to your point, you described after work. And some people really prefer that. Other people might like before work, in the morning, before maybe most people are awake. Or maybe they prefer midday. So even considering things of that nature, what people enjoy and when would they prefer to do things and helping them marry or pair together better um, their activity with life is something I think is really an area that maybe at least I know I need help with and trying to think through those problems uh, because whether you have children or you know you have a job that may demand certain times or tasks to be completed, that can really be a barrier. And understanding how to do those things are important. Yeah. So maybe we wrap up the first part of our discussion and then we go more to chronotypes and timing of exercise. So thanks, Stephen, for the first part. Then let's continue in a moment with the second part. Sounds good. Beth. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on 
Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.